Vivica Widow's Knock Knock, episode 37, narrated by Leo St. Paul. The visitor room of the boss was bustling with people. It was a lot less subdued than the more secured wings where visitors were limited. Vincent Baines had frequent visits from David Finn, offering updates on the search for Tony. The artist seemed dismayed at seeing his friend in prison, so he would come, sit at the table and chat about current events. Sometimes he would forget himself and lift his feet up as though they were back in rehab again. What are you doing today? he would ask. Vincent would find himself smiling. Well, you know my routine. I'd much rather hear about what's happening outside. I still haven't found Tawn. Do you think she's still living? David started to sob as he considered the worst. Vincent patted his back. David, said Vincent. David, lift your head, instructed. With a struggle, David listened to the former music teacher. He sat back up and wiped the tears on the sleeve of his shirt he wore. You know Tony wouldn't want you going to pieces. It's not going to be easy, but Vincent stopped himself. He was finding it difficult to finish those words smoothly. He took his spectacles off and started to clean. I'm sorry, he said eventually, putting his spectacles back on. I wish there was more that could be done. Tabitha's still in the Montefort, David said. Vincent frowned. Montefort? Thought she was... He hesitated, trying to find the best way to put it. Thought she was gone, he said delicately. David was instantly cheered. Oh, no, man. Didn't you see? She's still alive. They faked her execution and now Judge Doyle's going apeshit. When Tabitha gets out, she's going to go nuclear on those capital fuckers. Vincent stopped David. He was familiar with the artist's passion, his loyalty to his friends, but he also knew of his habit of running his mouth. He was sure Agnes would have enough to deal with. The boss lady shouldn't be getting that kind of encouragement. David hunched at the table again, but he kept his head up. I know she didn't believe in religion or anything like that, but I just wish that whatever she is, she could give us a sign, you know? She's okay. Vincent was nodding in agreement, still dealing with his own acceptance of what had happened. David looked past him. His eyes widened. A grin spread across his face. Holy shit, he exclaimed. Thanks, Ton. Vincent frowned as David stood. He looked over his shoulder. David was already crossing room to an inmate he recognised. Winslow, former owner of Harbour House and now Colford Correctional inmate, looked as though he was wishing upon wish that the ground would swallow him and chew the bones. David, Winslow greeted, putting his head down. David raised his eyebrows. Oh, it's David now, is it? He growled. No more, Mr Finn, you need help. Mr Finn, you shouldn't be doped up. You're a disgrace, Mr Finn. What under the bridge? Winslow tried. Is it fuck, said David. If I'm going to be thinking about everything you did for the rest of my life, you are too. He rolled up his sleeve and exposed his arm. There were no fresh track marks. I'm sure you'll be pleased to know I'm clean. Months with you was enough to put me right fucking off. Unable to leave his seat, Vincent was trying to signal a guard. Back to your seat, a guard called. David gave a parting shot. Oh, and by the way, Tabitha's still alive, he said. Just imagine what she's going to do when she gets her hands on you. David returned to Vincent, who was still watching from across the room. Tabitha was a huge concern for Winslow. If it was public knowledge that she was still alive, it meant something had happened on the outside among the lawmakers. Winslow spotted the teacher as they were being led back to their respective blocks. Winslow stopped him. Vincent, he tried a familiar greeting. I know we've had our differences, but as men of intellect, I'm sure we can stick together. Vincent stopped. You let that psychopath George Beckenridge do whatever you like with me. You knew I was trying to get my head straight, and you let him hurt me and others. Those are little differences, Doctor. He observed Winslow more closely. He started to laugh. Goodness, he said. They took your title too. 
The body language of people he met told their story easily to Vincent. It was a keen insight he had his whole life. The flinch Winslow made when he used the title, coupled with the sweat that broke immediately after, helped him deduce. Winslow couldn't bring himself to admit it. We should stick together, he said. Vincent shook his head. I don't think so. I have enough trouble in here being an ex-teacher accused of fondling his pupil. Lies you, sir, could have stopped George spreading. I really don't want to be associated with the likes of you. That being said, I do have two friends in Northwing who will be absolutely delighted that you have joined us. You know their mother, quite intimately. I learned that in the last day at Harper House. You were so concerned with the bailiffs you seemed to have forgotten your journals you'd had in your desk. You burned them up afterwards, of course, but I'm an observant man. And I like to read. Rita Penn trusted you. She trusted you when she thought she was pregnant, and you aborted her baby without her consent. I'm going to have to break that to Marcus and Simon gently. I want them to tear you apart for what you did to Tony first, because here Vincent gave a bitter laugh. You sure as hell are not going to be the same after what they do to you for hurting their mother. Vincent was ushered on by an impatient guard. Shower along, Gregory, he called. It's a principle I've come to live by. Tony could hear the door open. She heard the voices. The one that rolled above the others was Buddy's. Yeah, Tolly gave her the night of her life, he was boasting to his bros. Julie was all like, I totally love you now, bro. And I was all like, sorry, babes, it's just how I roll. Can't get too much of a good thing, am I right? That's solid, dude. Tony could hear Chad Perry agree. Bro, I don't think I could stay away. A chick like Julia throwing herself at me. Cooper was saying he must have thought about the farm girl a bit too much. I'm Tolly Johnson now, bro. The storage cupboard was open. Tony was seated with her legs crossed and arms folded. Fancy meeting you here, she jested. Tony had managed to keep a brave face, but in truth she was terrified. So far it had just been frat boy pranks, but she didn't know how far they would go to prove themselves. If Buddy was anything like his uncle, things could turn real nasty real quick. She was worried. Without a doubt, but the more time that she did actually spend with them, she began to realise that they were nothing more than three juvenile-minded boys whose families placed so much pressure on them that the only escape they could have was with drugs. They were messed up. They were looking for their place in the world and causing a lot of destruction trying to find it. They were... Tony frowned. Was that a golden cock they were carrying? They had another visitor with them this time. He was watching Tony with a little bit of drool in his lips. His hair looked as though it had been chopped with a knife. He was carrying a stuffed mouse in his arms, which coincidentally was wearing a matching capiso jacket. Hello, George, honey, said Tony. Long time no see. Jackson threw the newspaper down. The Felton Crier, owned by Beckenridge Financial Firm, had printed a story detailing the own family being suspected in the disappearance of Tony, the knock-knock baroness. That hussy thinks she can walk all over, as Jackson objected. Gabby knows what he's doing, Billy put in. Jackson scowled at his son. I worry he no longer has the capacity. I was talking to the board and it's time he tendered his resignation. Ronnie raged. You went behind his back? That's a low thing to do, Billy assured his father. Jackson maintained his stance. I had no choice. Since Pops' death, everything has been spiraling out of control. The own cousin spoke the truth. It's not his fault, but he spoke up. When they all looked at him, he said nothing further. And who do you suppose to do a better job? Ronnie asked. You? Naturally, the board will look to me, said Jackson. I always work closely with Pops. Ronnie shook his head. You wouldn't have achieved half of what Chick has done, you know it. These are extenuating circumstances. Jackson had fallen cold at the insinuation that he couldn't live up to the Cappy's reputation. 
He spoke calmly. That's what worries me, he said. With all that has happened, Chick might be losing his nerve. At that, the door to the den opened. Chick himself greeted them. His eyes looked a little strained, as though he had been lost in thought for some time. Come in, he said to his family. I've made my decision. They joined him in the room, and Chick took his seat behind the desk. Things here in Colford are becoming more and more difficult by the day. It's become more of a struggle for me to put things right, the cappy addressed him. Jackson looked to Ronnie, to him it was confirmation that Chick was in fact losing his nerve. It doesn't help that y'all keep fucking up at every turn and corner, Jackson frowned. Ronnie, he began, you're a good man, but you let those pike terrorists walk free. I cannot have that. Billy, he addressed his nephew. I brought you here on the understanding that you would bring that murdering nutcase with a chain in. He still walks a free man. Either you up your force or I'll find someone who will. But his eyebrows raised as the cappy's gaze fell on him. And you, boy, don't even get me started on you. I'll be here all night. Harsh. All of this I could abide. You're a family. However, when the board turns to me and suggests I stand down because of your mistakes, well, that about makes me so mad I could spit. Jackson? I know you're behind it, and if you ever question my leadership again, I will knock your teeth so far down your neck you will shit them out in single file, am I clear? But his lips tightened, his eyes widened, and the cappy stood. Jackson nodded, but the cappy wasn't satisfied he'd made his point. I'm going to need to hear y'all sign off. Yes, sir, they all replied in synchrony. Chick took his seat again. If I were to step down, it would be through my own choice. And Jackie, you would never succeed me. Now on to business. We are being pushed into a corner. The distillery has been removed from the playing ball, but whilst our pretty boy booze hustle is still at large, it means nothing. Billy, I want so much CPD presence on the streets that that boy is unable to so much as breathe without having a badge waved in his face. The thieving from our outposts is affecting business. It stops now. It has also become more and more important that Reginald Penn is apprehended. That little bitch Tabitha crying curses across the sea really got my back up. I want that son of a bitch Reginald behind bars before the lawmakers decide what to do with her. And if he ends up dead, here Chick spread his arms and shrugged. Well, that would be swell. He took a large intake of breath. I'm going to give y'all one more last chance to end this. I'm calling kickoff. But his eyes widened. His grin spread. Oh, dude, no fucking way, he gasped, but buzzing with excitement. I've never been more serious about anything in my entire life. Ronnie was shaking his head. He lowered his gaze. It's kickoff time, boy, Billy cheered. Everybody knows when you hear that whistle, bitches better start running. He clapped his father's shoulder. They failed out of the den, but Chick stopped Billy. Bill, he said, I want you to take Betsy. Billy beamed with pride. First kickoff, then having the honor of carrying the cappy's favorite rifle. It was a good day. The agents and I received an invitation to Harbour House. We weren't sure as to why, but... Since Elizabeth Beckenridge seemed to have similar motives as ours, we accepted. David described life in Harbour House to me in great detail. When I visited Vincent, he did too. It was like the home of a childhood friend. It was comforting and warm, but you just couldn't shake the feeling that something sinister went on between the parents behind closed doors. That was how the musician put it. His description was accurate, I observed, as I stepped inside. It was decorated in the style of our home, but... The winding corridors were cool and unwelcoming in places. Elizabeth had been waiting for us in the reception. Her assistant Mark was by her side. She tried everything she could with her money and influence to find Tony. 
had it been our own private investigators that led CBD to the body washed up in the Felton Ford at the foot of the Fulton Bridge. The remains had been stripped and cleaned of any evidence. They were looking for car crashes reported in the area, but it was a wide net to cast and very unlikely to produce anything solid. It was frustrating when the culprit was known, but no lawmaker would help until evidence gave them reason to. Ta-da! Elizabeth sang. Mark applauded. The rest of us all looked confused, so he stopped. Perhaps I should explain to these people what we're doing here, she decided. Mark agreed. Well, I've been following Sam here for a while, and I'm quite impressed with your progress. Can't be easy for you cramped up in your little apartment, so I gift you this. She turned and demonstrated the entire facility. It was Agent Kim who spoke first. You're gifting us Harbour House resources? Elizabeth nodded, pleased with her offer. It's everything you could possibly want. It has research facilities, secure rooms, space for whatever fight training it is you people do. It also has some lovely gardens. They were beautiful, weren't they, Mark? Mark agreed. They were. A little overgrown, but I've got the gardeners coming in tomorrow. Elizabeth beamed, then it settled. The agents looked among themselves. It would make a difference. You, Elizabeth pointed to Lydia, the pretty one. Kim turned with an exasperated frown. Don't you ride a motorcycle? There's even a space to store it. Lydia laughed. My big is out of commission at the moment. Had a bit of a face-off with a bull. Kitty's going to be in repair for some time. Elizabeth smiled girlishly. Mark, note that she calls the bike Kitty. Mark took note. Fear not, kitten, she said to Lydia. We'll have it back together in no time. Anything you need, just let me know. I'll supply whatever equipment you need. Computers, weapons, licenses. Oh, that reminds me. Mark, the agents will need license from the lawmakers to act as private investigators. Memo to Judge Doyle's office. Mark was busy noting, whilst the rest of us were busy trying to comprehend what was happening. Hmm. We need a name, Elizabeth's novel spirit was taking over as she created the scene in her head. What about the Revengers? No, that sounds too aggressive. The Force for Justice. She shook her head. Well, that's even worse. Kemp stepped in before Elizabeth got too carried away. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. We just want to do some good in the city. Yeah, we are the good gang, Lydia chuckled. It was a tongue-in-cheek reference, but it seemed to have ignited Elizabeth's excitement again. That's your kitten. You're the good gang, and you should be named after a good person. There was only one person I could think of whose name and sacrifice was worthy of such an accolade. Hicks, I said. Hicks was the one that brought us all together. We all agreed. None of us had been expecting to form the Hicks Agency, but given the state of affairs in the city, it seemed that it was just what was needed. As the saying goes, evil prevails when good people do nothing. As the agents began to scan the area, Elizabeth took me aside. Hicks is a fine suggestion, she said. I wouldn't have expected anything less from a fellow writer. A red marble mantle, by the way. We'll discuss that later. Why are you doing this? I asked her. She stopped. With Mark aside and the agents inspecting, it was just us. I put everything I had into finding Tony. In doing that, I learned so much about what was really going on. I spent my whole life in Felton. I had no idea what was happening beyond the manor walls. That was my mistake. Everyone told Ernest that he was naive. I did too, but I realised that I am no different. I don't want to be naive. I want to know everything that is going on so I can be prepared for it. Because experience has taught me that all the money in the world doesn't give you wings when a pissed off bastard from the shanties wants to throw you out of a window. She was feeling guilt for not having found Tony. She was experiencing survival guilt for outliving her brother when she could have pulled the Beckenridge Tower into order any time she chose. Most of all, she was feeling guilt for never having given a second thought to the plight of the rest of the city until its troubles came hammering on the manor gates. She beamed when Lydia returned. That bike of yours, she said. 
Let's get it repaired and functioning again. It may take a while, Lydia admitted. I'm waiting for the upgrades. What kind of upgrades? Prepare enough for combat situations. Increased torque, armor body, weapons perhaps. Elizabeth clapped her hands with glee. Yes, she cried. I'll give you what you need because that is happening. I know someone who could help, I suggested. She drew a bottle of champagne from behind the reception desk. Let's celebrate. This lady's nuts, Kim commented to me. I tried to warn you, was my reply. An author's zeal with billions to back her whims made her a very interesting combination. Pretty one, Kim teased. Cheeky cow. Well, babe, some eyeliner and a touch of lippy wouldn't be a complete loss on you, Franklin jested. When he saw Mark struggle to open the bottle, he offered his help. Their eyes met. Mark gave a wide smile. Franklin pulled the cork. Pop. Thanks, said Mark. You're welcome, replied Franklin. Elizabeth took the bottle and glucked from it. Here's to a promising future, she cheered. In a city upturned by the bad, Colford needed the good gang. The excitement was in the air with the formation of the good gang. Amidst the struggles, the fears and the upset, it offered hope that things could get better. The next stage of the journey brought us to the suburban town of Jamestown, known by the locals as Jamestown on occasion. I was one such local, and on this particular day, I brought the agents to a garage owned by my father Samuel, or Sam Senior. He was always pleased to see me return. When I first left for Colford, it had been he who warned me against it. The idea of living in the city didn't sit well with him. Considering what I had been faced with in that time, I can't really blame him. My father was a cheery soul who loved good company, and what better company on this day than the agents of the good gang? As pleasant as it was, they had come for a purpose. The attention to that purpose was brought by Elizabeth Beckenridge. You must be Mr. Crusoe, she said a little flirtatiously when she saw my father. My father smiled at her. He seemed quite beguiled by her too. It was all quite horrifying for me. Before my thoughts could wander onto the idea of having Elizabeth as some kind of twisted stepmother figure, Lydia was captivated by all the bikes and cars the garage had on offer. When my father noticed, he said cheerily, I have something real special for you. It's not been easy to get together and it's not been tested yet, but it's really something. When I was a little kid, I dreamed of a day I'd get to work on something like this, he said with excitement. Lydia was excited too. We all were. I want to thank you for the opportunity, he told Agent Law. There she was. She was to be Lydia's own personal transport. In tribute to this, the formidable bike was named Kitty. We all gave an audible gasp. Terrific job, Elizabeth cheered. Well, that is far out, gasped Agent Reynolds. There was no more time to lose. It hadn't been tested, so all that was left to do was for Lydia to demonstrate what it was capable of. The city descended into anarchy last night as a wave of protest turned violent. The violence was sparked when Elizabeth Beckenridge of Beckenridge Financial Firm deliberately destroyed a priceless heirloom of Capasso. Captain Charles Owen had called for a simple apology from Miss Beckenridge, who has a history of mental illness within her family. Miss Beckenridge refused and was believed to have taunted the destruction she had caused. Captain Owen had called for understanding after Miss Beckenridge's childish behaviour, but anger spilled over last night. Perhaps Miss Beckenridge will make that apology now. I'm Sandra Wake of Colford Daily News. The service elevator of the Falls Park building opened. The space was filled by a formidable figure. He was sleep-deprived, but still spurred on by anger and adrenaline. Reginald, Rita shrieked. She ran from Franklin's side to her husband, who collected her in his embrace. Agent Kim was on her feet. Lydia followed her lead. Not one step further, Agent Kim warned. She was expecting confrontation. Judging by the fury that was laced into his expression, the King of Maine had come alone. Belter slid from his sleeve, Franklin too, and was now armed. Rita, pet, warned Kim. We'll need you to take a step back. Please, Rita pled. We don't have to do this. 
Reginald kissed his wife, disregarding the guns aimed at him. It's okay, my love, he said. I'd like to talk peace with the agents. A dark reader did let him go. Reginald slowly laid belt on the table. Stepping back, he raised his arms. I'm here because of my son, Junior. I've taken him, and I've learned that they're holding him at one of our warehouses. They're looking for me to go and fetch him, and if I do, there'll be more bloodshed. That's what they've come to expect. Junior could be killed. Eugene Kim narrowed her gaze. You want us to go in there? I'm asking you to save my boy. I trust you saw the video. You know what they did to him. Tony was a good friend of mine too, and she's still missing. I don't care what happens to me, but you help them. With a nod of her head, Kim gestured to Lydia, who eased off. Franklin followed shoot. We're still an appointment of the Office of Lawmakers, Kim reminded him. Reginald gave a regal nod. I'm aware. I'll let myself into your custody. I just ask that you do what you can for Junior. Rita sobbed. She tried to plead with her husband. With tensions eased, he was able to take her into his arms. I promised I would do whatever it took to bring your baby back, he told his wife. To Agent Kim, he said, I'm myself to your agents. I don't trust CPD. Good, Kim agreed. That's something we can agree on. We'll do what we can for you, said Agent Kim to Reginald Penn, but we have to go now. The kickoff riots had calmed a little, but there was still a lot of tension in the streets. The good gang were hoping that whilst the distraction was there, Reginald Penn could be brought in without incident. The King of Maine said a fond farewell to his wife. He told her to give the boys his best. He promised her once again that her baby would be brought home. A note I have made before on Reginald, and one I wish to reiterate at this time, was his noble nature. He was a noble man. That much had been noted too, but as he departed the tower, he gave his thanks and well wishes to his staff. He commanded their respect. Long live the king, they cried as he made his exit. Through the bustle and noise of men, even above the burning and crying of the rioters, could be heard the sound of horses' hooves. The agents who had taken Reginald into their custody were closed in by none other than Van Holder of the Black Bands. I'll take it from here, agents, Van Holder warned. Oh, you fuck, he's in our custody, Agent Kim warned. He's under terror charges and it is my duty to the High Court. It's fine, Reginald said to Kim. I'll go with him. Please just do what you can for Junior. Through the streets of Maine, the King was kept behind Van Holder's horse. On the steps of the High Court, Judge Doyle waited. The law was the law. Van Holder brought the King before his judgment. One King wrangled, Your Honour, he said. End of episode.